Hello, everybody, and welcome to this episode of The Venture Oasis. This is the second part of my discussion with Zagin Yelchin, the founder and CEO of SetAnyCar.com. Uh, in the first part, we talked about uh, uh, Zagin's work at SetAnyCar, and, you know, here to SetAnyCar, we talked about the business in SetAnyCar and the future of SetAnyCar. In this part, we're going to talk more about Zagin, the founder, Zagin, the individual, his presence on social media, how he does that, why he does that, and also his work in philanthropy, his views about, you know, uh, basically advice that he gives to founders and to students and some other interesting aspects in Zagin's life. Uh, I hope that you find this episode uh, useful and complementary to the first episode. If you haven't listened or viewed the first episode, part one, Please go ahead and do that. Um, Venture Oasis is a podcast that helps to inspire, educate, document, and discuss issues of venture capital and company formation in this part of the world with wonderful founders, investors, and stakeholders in this industry. Here you go. Zagin, welcome back. Thank you. So in the first episode, we talked about sell any car a lot. And now we're going to talk about Zagin. So uh, the, most quest- the most common question that I get about you, Zagin, is that how can Zagin have the time to build a great business like Sell Any Car and also have the time to have such a great presence on social media? But you have a million subscribers on your YouTube channel uh, more than a million subscribers, right? 700,000 yes. followers on Instagram. Um, so so tell, let's start by this. Tell me about, you know, what got you into social media? What made you a social media influencer? Why, 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 do, you, why do you do that? Yes. So generally, let me tell you about the Saigon around four or five years ago. Only a handful of people, maybe 30 people approximately had my number. I didn't even have WhatsApp. Uh, I didn't have any social media presence, which, uh, which basically was even worth mentioning. And I was focusing on something called PR 1.0. PR 1.0 for me is where you engage with a PR agency they charge you, I don't know, $5,000 a month and they promise you four interviews. And then you go to an interview or you send an email questionnaire and you hope that they write something nice about you. And it works. It worked for a few years. But then I realized, one, I didn't have my own voice. It was always filtered. That's one. Second, I didn't have a means to communicate with my audience directly, instantaneously. Third, I believe I was hiding behind my logo. And I believe what that means is uh, I don't believe people follow logos. People follow brands which are represented by people. And people trust people. They don't trust a logo. So I said, okay, we need to create we need to create something what every startup needs. 
when we talked about the Selenikar uh, in the first part and the business models, uh, especially in the business plan, you have something called conversion rate, which is super, super important. How many people come to your website and how many actually end up transacting? One of the major elements of a conversion rate uh, optimization or an increase of a conversion rate is trust, which startups don't have. Right? When, you, when you're just new in the market, people don't trust you because they don't know you. So how to basically circumvent that, what you usually do is you do some PR, you show trust symbols on your website like, hey, associated with this government agency or partners with this known brand. So you create more trust around it. But the biggest trust comes with if the people know someone who is actually representing that company. And I can tell you now, I have like 2.5 million followers combined on all social media platforms that those people trust me because they feel like they know me. And that is something invaluable for the business. Invaluable in terms of they're extremely valuable to create trust around the people around you. And they also create some responsibility. If I mess up, if I do something wrong, I can't just resign and leave. I'm going to be there with my face and with my name. So it makes me more responsible and more cautious around how I treat my customers. That is something which in, uh, in, the, in the earlier times, what I say PR 1.0 uh, was possible where the CEO was just, you know, he messed up, he left and that's it. Today, the companies, especially startups, they need to have someone who is basically, and not only one, it could be the whole team, who represents with his whole own reputation. Like if I mess up, my reputation will be not only gone in the industry, but in the entire uh, um, audience of my social media presence. So that is really important for me to have a face for the brand and also to have a direct relationship with the audience and also have control over your own voice unfiltered, unfiltered by uh, media representatives. And on top of that, you do PR one. Right. So what you usually do is you push a message and then you get support by the other media outlets. And that is important. I believe this is something where in the world we're living in today, we cannot uh, avoid. Uh, it might have worked before, but today it's, got, it's a major competitive advantage to be able to spread messages, uh, not at the mercy of other outlets. So um, that is one thing. I started off with, with social media by uh, giving business advice. I said, look, I went through um, several years of experience. Why don't I share it and see how the feedback will be? I said, similar to what I've explained today in a bit more details, I said, uh, how do you start a business? How do you build a business plan? I've explained that. I also, in order to give it a bit more of a boost, I also showed what could be the rewards of a successful entrepreneurial journey? So you show a bit of your lifestyle. You say, look, I meet, um, I meet great people because I am in an industry which I love to be in and there are certain interesting people you should meet as well. So when you build that uh, whole image, which is knowledgeable about business, great lifestyle, you are able to inspire people. And if I look at it and I calculated it, in the worst case scenario, um, the, the efforts I have uh, made on social media might have created 10 to 20,000 jobs 
if I just look at conversion rates and assume a worst case scenario and say only a certain minuscule percentage of people um, started the business because I have inspired them, and of those only a minuscule uh, percentage actually was successful and hired people, that number actually equals 10 to 25,000 jobs I have not created but inspired to create. And that is also something which is part of giving back. So tell me, tell me a story uh, that is related to your social media presence that I don't know about and that our audience does not know about. I oh, mean, wow. I don't know. What you're doing. <laughs> that's, that's, okay. So, I mean, it's really tough to guess what you guys uh, don't know because it's uh, it's accessible on the internet. Uh, the only thing I know you probably don't know is something which is coming up, right? And I don't know either. <laughs> so, having said that, um, I mean, I, I could tell you a few few great experiences I had uh, with social media. Um, the most recent one was uh, my transformation, and this is about around health. Health is a big topic in uh, for my life. I have actually dedicated my life to um, uh, to a personal topic around medical research, and generally, I feel like. And this was during the Salani car journey. I had health issues uh, around sleep, around hair loss, uh, not hair loss, just normal hair loss, but uh, circle-shaped uh, bunches of hair would just fall off my skull. And that was because um, I was stressed, right? So I looked into this. I talked to doctors. I did analyses. And I figured out um, I was neglecting health a lot. So business is only really worth it if you if you are healthy right i mean what are you working for if you just die right so at the end of the day um i started a transformation so i went to the publisher's house of a magazine called man's health right men's health is the world's largest fitness magazine for men and i i asked them i said look I want to be on the cover of your magazine. And obviously the editor in chief, she was about to laugh and said, I don't think you're in shape to be on the cover of our magazine. And I said, I know that, but I will, I will make it. Now my goal is not to be a model or something and, uh, or just to look good. It was really, if I set my goal there, then I knew if I would be on the cover of that magazine, I would be in great shape and I would have probably done something to improve my health. So social media now made sure that I stick to it. Why? Because on that day, I actually posted it. I, I actually put a story up and I said, I will be on this cover. And I'm going to work out every day. And I called that hashtag no days off. Now, actually, thousands of people actually followed it. And every day I went to the gym, I actually watched my health and my diet and, and it gave me this pressure. And as I said, when there are so many people watching you and your reputation is on the line and you, your word, you said it, so you have to do it. If that's on the line, you're going to make sure that you're going to stick to it. So not only did I inspire probably hundreds of people to transform their bodies into a healthier state as well. I actually created uh, a so social pressure around my targets as well. And I then ended up being on the cover of uh, Men's Health 
um, a few weeks back. So this was something which uh, led me to lose 24 kilos. Uh, so uh, and become much healthier than I was before and much more productive now. So social media can actually create something really great. It can inspire people. It can put pressure on your targets and you make sure that you reach them. And then when you reap the rewards, you can actually share it with the world and be proud of yourself and then move on to the next target. Wonderful. Amazing. Congratulations, Zagan, on this. Thank you. But Thank tell you. me. How, how do you make it happen? Because, you know, uh, you answer emails instantaneously. Uh, you respond to important calls. Uh, you are always on top of your business. At the same time, you're always on top of your social media and, and you're exercising. Tell me about a typical day in your life. How do you manage, how do you manage your time so that you're able to address the important things in, in your work, the important things with your family, and the important things in your social media. It's, it, for, for, me, for me, you know, this is a big puzzle that I fail to understand even after seven years of knowing you. So, first of all, I believe uh, if you're leading a company, you share the credit for the successes and you take all the blame for the failures. So I share the credit. I have a great team. I think that is one of my uh, really, um, I would say, areas where I am above average. I'm really able to find a great team. And that's why I dedicate a certain portion of my time. Uh, anything I do, I try to... So first of all, I love humans. So I love to talk to people. I think everybody knows something I don't. So I get to know a lot of people. And then I see how they could add value in our team. Even though if they're not looking for a job, I'm actually finding really, really good people who are better than me in what, uh, what they could do. So that's one thing. The second thing, so that also goes for my assistant, for example, so which organizes my calendar. What I always say, if you want to achieve something, you don't just formulate a vague target. For example, you cannot say, oh, I'm going to build an empire tomorrow. What does that even mean, right? Building an empire is so vague, there's nothing actionable. So the first thing you want to do in order to achieve a target is define actionable tasks. So tomorrow, I'm going to call 100 sales uh, I'm going to make a hundred sales calls. I'm going to meet this person who's going to get me closer to that target. I'm going to conduct three job interviews. These are actionable tasks. And then when you set them for tomorrow into your calendar, you can easily take off of what you've been achieving. I mean, at the end of the day, if you look into my calendar, it looks like a to-do list, right? And it is filled most people spend eight hours a day being not productive at all. I always tell to my people, they say, I say, I don't pay you for the hours you work. I pay you for the results. If you're sitting here in the office for eight hours and just staring at your laptop, don't consider this as work unless you've produced a result, right? You might have a big goal. Put them into small actionable tasks, plug them into your calendar, 
and tick them off at the end of the day. That's work. Spending time in an office is not work. So for me, that is something which I could just give to you guys. Whoever is listening wants to achieve certain things. And again, by no means, I'm the best. I'm just one of the students of life as well. I'm just trying to understand how I can be more productive every day. What I have actually learned is that I get a really, really bad feeling if I wasn't productive or if something is left in my calendar, which is not done yet, right? So it's a matter of prioritization. So if I get emails which are important, obviously I'm going to prioritize them and answer them. So if Khaldun sends me an email, he gets an answer quickly because he's prioritized. <laughs> so, but, but generally, generally speaking, it's about prioritization. It's about delegation. So what are the things you have to do, right? You don't hire a team in, in order to end up doing what they should be doing, right? So I put them into my calendar. I have actionable tasks, and I'm very strict with myself if I cannot achieve certain tasks which are supposed to be done. Because what will happen is that today's task will just move on to tomorrow's task, and tomorrow you'll be even more busy. And what's the last point is uh, stress, right? I analyze stress so much that I now figured it out. Stress is not being too busy. Stress is when you don't know what to do now, right? When you don't have a clear vision of your next step to do. That's when stress comes and you are kind of lost. You have so much to do and you don't know what to do. So you can actually manage that really well, but just looking into your calendar. My calendar is one of my productivity tools I use so much that I look into it and say, no matter what is now still pending, the next thing to do, the next step, that's what I'm going to focus on. Right, and that is, uh, I think, uh, the way I force myself to be more productive. Uh, Zagen, has there been any particular resources or or uh, sources of learning or training that you've used to develop those habits that you're talking about that you can share with uh, with other people? So, if somebody says yes, you know, I I wanna. I want to be like Zygen in what he says. Uh, can you guide him to some additional resources to explore? I think one of the biggest, biggest learnings I had uh, in the past was um, the people you surround yourself with, not physically necessarily. Like Khaldun lives in a different country than I uh, live, but... Um, the people you surround yourself with, you are in contact with, are going to shape you uh, in either a positive or negative way. And you want to make sure that you choose those people right. And that is that could be, for example, the biggest learning I had in university were two things. One, I learned how to learn. And the second one was the people around me during that time were so valuable in my life still today that... Um, that is the, the, the treasure I got out of university. So these are the two learnings I had in university. So I basically have mentors around me, people around me where I say, and by the way, this is something for you guys who might just uh, have not access to uh, bright minds immediately, but they don't have to be your friends. Some people 
I mean, you can, you can learn from people on the internet, right? You can choose your uh, role models and just study them. What are they doing? What are they saying? What are they trying to uh, teach you? And then move a practice into a habit. This is also one of the greatest things. So you basically surround yourself with these people, or at least with their mindsets and the ways of lives they are actually uh, conducting. And you make that your practice. So you actually do that whatever they are doing. At one point of time, that practice becomes a habit and you become the best version of yourself. So having said that, copy. Copy as much as possible. Learn from those people uh, around you. And uh, especially, for example, what I've done is I looked at uh, the experiences my business partners have. One of them is Khaldun and I learned so much from him and, and others. And I said, okay, this must, be, this must be something really good. I really like that feature. So I'm going to copy that. And I'm going to see that with another person. I'm going to copy that. And then you become the best version of yourself, as I said, and you become a role model for others. And this comes, again, with responsibility, and you become uh, a great human, I believe. Generally speaking, this is, this is what I would say. There is not a specific book I have read which basically tells me that. Um, but again, I would, I would recommend you to uh, learn. And learn could be, could be from books as well, obviously. Wonderful. Uh, so, Zaigen, um, how do you, uh, on, a, on a daily basis, could you point us to some of the, uh, you know, newsletters or websites or apps that you use in order to keep up with what's going around you in the industry and some of the productivity tools that you also use inside the company, inside Sell Anycar for efficient communication, efficient follow-up, efficient management? What are some of the things that you found really, really useful, invaluable, so that others could explore? Okay, so this is really good because I wish someone told me that before. Um, obvious things are Microsoft Excel and Open Office. The, 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 I mean, the, the one which is for free, or Microsoft Excel, which you can license for relatively cheap, is really good to build business plans. So I assume, or I suggest, you should really, really learn that, right? Um, now, in terms of productivity, generally speaking, um, I enjoy two apps. One is Audible and one is Blinkist. Both of them are actually audiobooks uh, or a, a repository of audiobooks. One of them summarizes books, which is Blinkist, into 15-minute snippets. So you can read 10 books a day and get the best out of it and then basically um, learn the gist out of a book. Audible is... A, is pretty much an Amazon-owned company which uh, reads out books to you. That way, I was able to listen to books while I was working, and I was summarizing them, and I write down things. So one of the most important things I have learned in terms of keeping ideas was just writing them down. So on your phone, every, every phone has a notes app. Write down things which are really uh, worth remembering. And then later on, you will have a, a, a collection of ideas, which is really great. And you can, you can um, uh, have a, a um, constant or database for your learning material. Now, um, these are a few apps I'm using. Generally, I use Twitter, obviously. So I subscribe to news feeds, uh, which 
uh, are interesting for me, so I go over that uh, uh, every day. I spent today approximately two hours in research every day, but that's because I'm actually working on a book, but uh, I was one hour. I think one hour a day is enough to keep up to date. And then that is also one of the secrets I could tell you, maybe no one knows. I, um, at Sell Any Car, we have, we have a brainstorming session every week. We have a, a meeting where um, a certain managers, we, we just sit and we present research results. So from academics, from universities, from, from any type of field. So I always said, imagine you're talking to a doctor. Imagine you're talking to a janitor. Imagine you're talking to a nurse. Imagine you're talking to any type of profession. What could that profession add value to your business? And you will be surprised because you might only think, oh, in order to build a business like sell any car, you should only talk to people in the auto industry or you should only talk to people in the tech industry. But that's wrong. I think the best ideas will come from all different types of industries where you just say, okay, what is this, what is this specialty? What is the skill set of a doctor, a medical doctor, which could help at sell any car, right? And we, we just look into that and brainstorm and said, okay, a doctor is really someone who has this helper syndrome, who is really um, detail-oriented. What is a doctor, right? When you realize that, you say, how could these features add value at sell any car? Most of them might not make sense, but suddenly you find a gem. And you say, wow, this is something we should use. Then we take this idea and we research. For example, the recent one we're doing at Selling Car is uh, where I was looking at a profession called, uh, it was a psychologist, right? I said, how can a psychologist help sell any car? At first glance, you might say, well, no, we're not treating people, right, for psychology, uh, psychological issues. But then I realized, wow, actually there's a field called behavioral economics, which is... Uh, so then I said, whoa, what is behavioral economics? So I deep dive into more and more and more and I figure out it has huge implications on pricing. It has huge implications on the atmosphere you create in your branches. So suddenly I, I started off with a random profession. I said psychologist. I ended up by optimizing my pricing. So this is something which I would really uh, recommend to uh, anybody who has the time is just educate yourself around a topic uh, and uh, do this on a regular basis. And this is what we're doing. And this creates really great products at the end of the day and results for our companies. Amazing. So Zagen, uh, for those who don't know you or haven't listened to the first part of our broadcast, you were born in Germany. Uh, your your dad and mom uh, came from Turkey. You can maybe tell us more about where you know which town they came from. Uh, you grew up in in Germany, and then you came and started your business in the UAE. So you are German Turkish living in the UAE. Today we're in a world where polarization is is on the rise. You know. For, for various reasons in various places in the world and where people are thinking about, you know, 
issues of identity and uh, and issues of diversity. I know that you know you've got some you know this is something that you have thought about. You've talked about it in your in your social media, and uh, you uh, were able to build a successful business, create significant amount of capital formation or wealth help and create jobs for a lot of people and make made people lives better you know through the services that uh, that you made and you're doing that you know while living in in another country maybe you've never you know thought maybe about dubai before you know whatever you are about to finish school so talk to me about your thoughts about identity your thoughts about diversity as an expat or a Turkish German living in Dubai? And how does that factor into the future? I mean, uh, again, as an, in a nutshell, I love humans. And I don't just say that. I really love humans. And I never saw a difference in, 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 in people because early on, I was, I, I actually myself, I had an identity crisis, but I didn't realize it, right? I was three years old. I went to kindergarten and I realized that I grew up in an integrated class, not only racially mixed, but also mixed in terms of the health conditions. I grew up with spastic children, with uh, autistic children, with blind, with deaf children. So I early on was very tolerant around different uh, types of humans. Uh, now, later on, it really helped me because I could deal with a lot of people and I could feel it much more. My sister is uh, disabled, so I, I, have the, I know what it means. So uh, when, when, when people come with their, with their uh, challenges in life, and I, I, try to, I try to keep this up because it helps me deal in every type of business relationship. And I can kind of, like a chameleon, put myself into the conditions or the situation they are in. So this has helped me. Now, generally, I was, my parents uh, are from Turkey, so I have Turkish descent. Then I was born in Germany. Um, and my, I mean, my grandparents already came to Germany in the 60s, so one of the early, early uh, guest workers. So we have, we have been German, Turkish for uh, now, I mean, decades now. Having said that, um, I, had, I had these discussions a lot. When people ask me, where are you from? And this happened to me, I mean, it, coincidentally, in one of, the, my, one of my favorite countries in the world is the U.S. I love it to travel, uh, go there. And, uh, because it's also the birthplace of many businesses uh, I admire and I actually um, uh, do myself, right? So I went there. At the border, the guy said, where are you from? And I said, I mean, you have my passport. So legally speaking, I'm German. Uh, biologically speaking, I'm Turkish. Uh, geographically speaking, I'm Emirati. <laughs> I mean, commercially speaking, I'm international. So what is that question? What does that mean? And he's like, no, uh, like, what is your descent? I said, which level? I mean, my first, like, I mean, I'm Turkish, but if you go back, maybe a thousand years i might be chinese if you go back uh, ten thousand years i might be african so which level are you referring to and i said where are you from he's like i'm american but he was obviously of chinese descent and i said um so you know what i mean right and he's like he understood that he said oh okay so 
You're German. I said, yes, I am German with Turkish descent living in Dubai. So the question of where you're from, first of all, is very difficult to answer because it always uh, has a prejudice around what type of level you're asking to. But the second one is also it becomes less and less or should become less and less relevant. Why you should not lose your culture and your heritage and your language, I believe, um, especially during today's, in today's world, uh, we should focus on the things which really matter, and that's humanity. I remember when we were last in Stanford, probably, you know, 18 months ago when we were on fundraising, and uh, I think we had our first meeting at 10 a.m., before that, you already had two meetings with professors at uh, at Stanford, uh, you know, School of Medicine, or at uh, you know, or at the hospital there. I don't exactly remember. And uh, you were working on on some amazing ambitions. And you know, I'm always surprised by your philanthropy and work that you've done on the side. So you know. Talk, talk to me about that uh, a bit more and uh, talk to me about the work that you've done in philanthropy overall and why, why do we do that? How does it help you? And, uh, you know, how, how can others participate as well? So when I was uh, eight years old, uh, my, my sister was born and she was born super intelligent. Uh, she was uh, super smart. Uh, around uh, six months, five and a half months into her birth, she actually, um, I discovered her in the kitchen and she was having a seizure. She was blue in her face and I was eight, eight and a half years old. So I was not really mature. I was shocked and I called my mother and then they disappeared. She spent two years in hospital. And um, when I was 10, I said, man, I want to solve this problem. I didn't know how to solve it, obviously, because I was 10. And I thought, okay, I'm going to make a lot of money and I'm going to pay doctors to fix her, bring her back to, to our home. And we basically have a normal family again. And this was in, in me. And I said, how do I make a lot of money? I, I saved my pocket money and I thought I'm going to make a lot of money with it when I was around uh, 15, 16, I actually said, now I have a means of making a lot of money so I can pay the doctors and they can fix my system. And I became a professional football player. So uh, actually, this is what I wanted to do. And I realized that uh, the likelihood of becoming that is relatively low, even though I played in the highest league for a while. Um, and then uh, I realized later on that uh, it's, it's a so-called incurable disease, right? This is um, a, a genetic mutation, a random mutation in their DNA sequence, which basically leads to epilepsy, uh, a rare form of uh, so-called uh, certain syndrome, which um, uh, triggers seizures and, and uh, learning disabilities. So um, the best day I had was in Dubai. We won uh, the Digital Business of the Year Award in Dubai. And my sister and my mother were actually at home visiting me from Germany. And then she calls me. Literally, I was just leaving the stage, uh, accepting the award for Selene Carr. And she calls me and says, your sister had a seizure. 
so and that's been after a while which uh, i felt so guilty because uh, seizures are triggered if she if it's if she's in the heat right so she was spending time at the pool under the sun and suddenly she had a seizure and then i saw that and i felt like that's the best and worst day of my life at the same time and i realized that i'm an entrepreneur i'm here to solve problems and i will make it my life's work to actually cure her so i'm not a medical doctor i'm not a neuroscientist but as an entrepreneur what you do is you combine resources to solve a problem in the market. So I chose that same tool set and said, how do I solve this? So the first thing I did as I went online, I said, okay, or well, I went to doctors and said, give me the medical reports. What does she even have, right? Epilepsy is too broad. You cannot just say she has epilepsy, it's incurable, and you expect me to accept that. At least let me understand it. So I re read about it. I figured out that um, the that there are certain universities which focus on epilepsy, certain faculties. So I reached out to all of them, right? And I said, hey, Stanford is one of them. Um, I mean, at the end of the day, I, I was also in New York. I was in Miami. The Miami ones were actually the, uh, the, the best ones which helped me in this case. Um, and so I tried to get access to the best professors. Obviously, it's not that easy. So... Um, I went there, they said, you're not the patient, we cannot talk to you about it, we have to see the patient, and so on. It took me one and a half years to even get an appointment. And um, there are certain ways to get into it. I mean, obviously, you can talk to foundations, support foundations, uh, sponsor events. So you get to those places where those decision makers or authorities in this industry are actually present. And that's where I actually introduced myself and I got, I got to get into this network. Uh, again, this is very similar to my business approach. As I told you, you need to get to the people of that industry to be able to understand it and then also be recognized in that industry. So I brought together, years later, I brought together the best people around uh, this topic for me. At one point of time, um, I even met a professor, she said, I believe reading the medical reports you've sent me and translated, this could be a certain syndrome. You should test for that. So I went back to Germany, and this is 22 years after the doctors in Germany still couldn't tell me what she had. Um, I said, can you test for this random mutation? And they said, look, this is like looking for a needle in a haystack. The test alone costs $10,000. I said, go ahead and do it. And it was that. We found out after 22 years what she had. Now, this gave me a lot of, um, a lot of ammunition to solve the problem because now I know which fight I'm fighting, which war I'm in. I didn't know who I was fighting. I was just saying epilepsy there's hundreds of of types of epilepsy so i figured that out and i went back to the uh, experts and i said look this is what she has and now they could help they said oh wow okay if it's that then whatever she's taking as medication now is poison so we changed medication and um now so what has happened she's seizure free now 
See, she reduced all the side effects. I mean, she was, she, her bones were melting because of the wrong medication. So she lost 15 kilos, um, which is great. She was overweight. She had skin issues because it was creating uh, irritations on her skin because of the wrong medication. Having said that, she, now we solved two out of three issues, right? One was seizure freedom. The second was the reduction of the side effects. And the third one is still my fight, which is the regeneration of her cognitive skills. Now, that is something very difficult. Uh, and I'm still working on that. How? Obviously, I'm supporting as much as I can in medical research. Um, I do get involved uh, as much as possible in raising awareness. Uh, but generally, that is what keeps me going. Uh, this is amazing, Zagan. Uh, amazing story. I, I did not know what happened after when we were together in Stanford, but I'm, I'm so happy to hear that. Uh, Zagan, this, this, this is wonderful. And as I said, you know, you're, uh, you're one of our superheroes. You're, uh, I think, one of the superheroes of the industry. You're a superhero to German founders. You're a superhero to Turkish founders. And I think you're a superhero to cross-border founders. So let me ask you, when a superhero faces a problem and, uh, you know, uh, we're, we're all humans and, uh, and we do face problems and we do face challenges and we do get into trouble. Who do you talk to and, uh, and what do you do? I mean... Um, when you're frustrated, when you feel that you've hit you know, a dead end, when things are going in the wrong direction. So this is also one of the learnings I had in the past decade. It depends on the problem, obviously. Certain uh, personal problems I tried to solve myself and uh, kind of eat it into myself, which is uh, not really healthy. Um, I talk, that's, that's something which I, I still have to improve. I'm not emotionally intelligent as much as I wish to. Um, but in terms of business, I... I I had a, a, a friend who basically told me um, that there's two ways of dealing with bad thing, problems, right? Or bad situations. One, you get angry at it. Or two, you focus on the solution. I mean, that's, that's what always comes to my mind when I, when I have a situation. For example, when COVID-19 hit, this was a situation where um, you could get angry. You could say, where did this come from? We've built so much. Now our business is suffering. We have to shut down. We have to uh, uh, let people go. Or you basically say, look, it is what it is. And you look at it pragmatically and say, what is the solution to this problem? What is the best case? What is the best case scenario? And how do you get there? Right? So, and that is the, the, the mentality I'm now trying to foster as much as possible and say, um, deal with it very pragmatically. Now, it's easier said than done, especially when it's uh, personal issues. Um, you need to have friends. I also realized that it's not the number of friends you have. It's more the quality of friends. Um, I had to do a lot of cleansing uh, in the past. Uh, in terms of just, you know, getting rid of negative vibes. One of the uh, 
uh, and I, I summarized, I looked at entrepreneurs, I looked at successful entrepreneurs and I summarized the six trades every entrepreneur has, right? I have seen six trades of successful entrepreneurs. Um, one of them is positivity. Like I have not seen a successful entrepreneur, right? And I have met tens of thousands of people, probably a thousand entrepreneurs. And I have seen that all of them look at it, look at their businesses, look at life in a positive manner. They're very optimistic, right? If it's 50-50, they believe they're winning. So that is something which is really the mentality someone has when you solve problems. I mean, there's a problem for a reason because someone else hasn't solved it yet. So you need a positive mindset to solve it. You look at it from a different angle and you don't get uh, scared of uh, the, the challenges you might or the hurdles you might face. So positivity, I think, is, is something which, which makes you deal with uh, the problems. It's not something which basically says recklessness. That's something else, right? But positivity in a pragmatic manner. Wonderful, Zagan. We'll take a quick break and then we have a few more minutes to wrap up. Thank you, Zagan. I'm Mina. We are company builders and venture capitalists with founders' attitudes and investors' mindsets. Visit imina.com for more information. So, welcome back, Zagan. Uh, so, Zagan, I'm hoping that, you know, not only founders, investors, and people in the industry would be listening to this, but uh, also students and, uh, you know, people who are thinking about starting a job or joining the industry. So, if, you know, uh, for, uh, for students who are, you know, in their late high school and, and at university, what are some of the best advice that that you've gotten that you know you you would like to convey to them so i mean there's many things i've already mentioned and some of them i'll probably skip for now but one thing which is really interesting was um when i was 19 or even when i moved to dubai i was 24 uh, i hadn't realized how much time i have like this is really something especially when you're young and university you have time the most successful companies, and that's measured around the top 1% growth startups, uh, are founded by founders who are 45 years on average, right? And so basically, think about it. 45 years is the average, right, of top 1% growth startup companies. When you are 24 years old, you have time. Try as much as possible. Do not focus on, on, on things which don't keep you, make you happy or you don't have passion for. And um, I'm not saying you should just quit your job and just start something uh, right away. Do your analyses. As I said, doing research for 90 days doesn't do any harm. But then jump into the cold water and analyze risk as much as possible. One thing I want to tell you about is being an entrepreneur is not risky, right? There's a huge uh, misconception around it. There's four types of risk. One is the product risk, market risk, team risk, and financing risk. And you can 
analyze them, you can mitigate them, and you can probably eliminate three out of four really confidently. So when you do jump into the cold water, without doing analyses, without looking at the risk, and without actually um, knowing your numbers and the steps I've told you before in, in part one, then it is risky. Yeah, so if you don't do your homework and you jump into an exam, you will probably fail, right? So at the end of the day, I think if you do your homework, then entrepreneurship is probably going to make you um, happy. I mean, if, if you have that entrepreneurial mindset, and this is something I really want you to, uh, to take out of this, is if I can inspire you now to become an entrepreneur, then I have achieved my goal. And entrepreneurship does not mean, as I said, you don't need to be young. You don't need to be an inventor. And you don't necessarily need to be an expert in the industry, right? Being an expert in an industry, you're starting a business in today. It's called contextual entrepreneurship. That means, for example, the IBM guys, right, um, who basically uh, started SAP, they did Contextual entrepreneurship. They saw they were in an industry. They saw the problem in that industry, tried to solve it in their company. They weren't accepted, so they started on their own. That's contextual entrepreneurship. But most businesses are not started contextually. They started by someone who didn't even have a clue about the industry. And within six months, you can become an expert in any industry, almost any industry. Uh. And when you talked about the brainstorming sessions that you guys have at, at Sell Any Car, in which you say, what can somebody from this career or from this you know, practice teach us at Sell Any Car? What can a nurse teach us? What can a behavioral economics uh, you know, expert teach us, etc.? If, if I ask you for advice for today for people who are undecided, uh, you know, in their, in their education or people who are generally interested in business in general and that has you know, a lot of practices and a lot of subjects inside it. What, what recommendations do you have? What do you think are some of the most important skills that, uh, you know, that, that students, uh, that people who are students today will require when they go into, into you know, the job field in, in, in three or four years from now? So I told, I told you about the six traits uh, every successful entrepreneur has, which I have seen. One of them is, as I said, positivity. Another one is called activity level. So they have a high level of energy. And what that means is they're very active. When you are in university, when you are growing up, when you are in school, 90% of your time is preparation for the actual 10% of life you want to have, right? Switch that. Spend 90% of your time doing and spend 10% preparing, right? So that's one thing. I wanted to become an aesthetic plastic surgeon after I actually decided not to become a football player. And I um, did that because I said, as I said, when I was 10, I said, I want to have a lot of money to solve my problem. So who makes a lot of money? So as a young guy, I said, aesthetic plastic surgeons, they're rich. And they have a, actually, they have a glamorous life. So what did I do? Again, like I always do, I figure out who are the authorities in that industry, right? 
But I didn't, I mean, I was 18, I think, 18, 19. So I said, let me go to the library. So I went to the library and I told the librarian, I said, give me all the books written by German aesthetic plastic surgeons. So obviously I didn't read the books, but I read the names on the books. So I said, that must be an authority. So what did I do? I went, uh, I don't know if it was the yellow books or even if I was using the internet back then. I think I was. And I called them up. I said, hey, um, obviously not them directly. Their, their receptionist picked up and said, hey, I want to talk to Dr. X and Dr. Y. And they said, uh, how can we help you? What is your medical condition? I said, no, my medical condition is not the topic. I want to become an aesthetic plastic surgeon like him. And I'm about to decide, so I need to talk to him. So obviously they said, look, uh, this is not how it works, but come on. I said, this is for my life, please, whatever. They said, okay, you get five minutes and two weeks call and I'll convince him, whatever. So I talked to them and I asked two questions. I said, hey, are you rich? <laughs> and uh, and uh, how is your life? Like, do you have a glamorous life? And the immediate thing which came back said, first of all, this is not why you do it. You need to have a passion for what you're doing and you need to really love what you're doing. And second, we're not billionaires. We, are, we, we, we became, first of all, most of us are not super rich. Some of us, like maybe me, because you saw my book and I'm an authority in this, I became rich, relatively rich, but only when I was like 45 years old. I said, why so late? That's just too late. That's, and why? And they said, because first of all, you're studying for seven years, okay? You do another year of specialization and you do um, 600 surgeries on your own. And then you three year old, three years internship, that's 10, 11 years gone. I said, okay, so 19, 10, 11, oh, wow. And then you're just working at a hospital probably or for someone else before you are good enough and before you have the money to start your own place. Then you start your own place and you grow your reputation. You're 40, 45 years old before you even start making good money, if you make good money. I said, okay, but where is the glamour? The glamour. I said, I don't know where you get this glamorous life from, but usually we just get invited to some events because some of our clients are celebrities. I said, okay, so you're not the celebrity. So it, it basically was a, I had a role uh, set and I said, this is what I want to become. But I didn't really realize what it means. And entrepreneurship is not only the lifestyle you might see by, from successful entrepreneurs, it's the hard work you have to put in under it, right? So you, that is what basically, that X factor, that passion is what's going to keep you going. Because the result, which is like an iceberg, right? That's only a little bit on the top. But what's under the water, that's really the hard work. Every day you have a problem you have to solve. So having said that, I've ignored that. And I started as an intern at a plastic surgery, right? And um, because it was a mandatory requirement to be able to study medicine in Germany, you have to have an internship uh, before. And I was fired right away. Like a few months later, she said, oh, you, are the, you would be the worst doctor ever. But you would probably be a good businessman. That's what she said. 
And uh, yeah, I think she was right. Well, I think yeah, this story resonates uh, <laughs> with me as well. Sagan, it's been it's been a pleasure having you at the Venture Oasis. I hope you, you enjoyed it as much as I as I enjoyed it, and I hope our viewers and listeners will will enjoy it. Uh, take care. Have a great day, and and all Thank of the you. best in in everything that you're doing in business, in life, philanthropy, and everything else. Thank you, Zach. Thank you. I appreciate it so much. And all the best with Venture Oasis. Thank you. Take care.